Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks, what the fucksters? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it if you haven't been here before. This is going to be an interesting episode, I think. I've been doing stuff. I've been out in the world. Many of you know that I'm, I'm touring, and I've been out on the road quite a bit. And on this little leg of the journey over the last weekend... I flew into D.C., and then I drove up to Jersey in Red Bank, the Count Basie Theater. Uh, as I'm recording this, I'll be doing uh, Philadelphia tonight. But also, as many of you know, as I fly in and I, and I drive around for hours and hours to these shows uh, with no opener, just me in the car, thinking about things, thinking about my life, uh, looking uh, to the future, looking to the past, just trying to figure out how I'm situated in this world, in my body, in my mind, in my heart, asking the big questions of myself, and also thinking about the past and, and thinking about the nature of, of memory and what do we really remember about ourselves? What, what, what does memory serve? What is, why do we even have it? It's very, it's malleable. I, I don't know if malleable is the right word, but over time it shifts, it changes. You may not remember things quite right. You may not have been at that place or been in that house or, or actually did the things you think you did. It's a, it's a strange thing, memory, as you get older. And certainly, as I watch my father lose his, it, it, you realize that, you know, what are you really left with? And what do you really have when it comes to memory? So it's it, this is sort of about kind of reckoning with personal history a little bit. And it turns out, like, it's also reckoning with, with a collective history. Uh, because I, I, was in, I was in D.C. And uh, what do you do in D.C.? What, what, what do I talk about? A lot these days is where we're heading as a country and what I feel is important or not important culturally and how culture has been hijacked, which is clearly true, uh, by, by nefarious forces for the most part, some just blatantly capitalistic forces, but certainly some nefarious forces when it comes to expression of, of, of history, of marginalized people's history. And I've just had a sort of a, an interesting experience lately that's sort of expanding my mind around this stuff. I just spent a week in Tulsa working on a television show created by, written by, produced by, acted by Native Americans, which is really a first in the history of this country. And it is a true form of uh, American expression, of human expression that has been sort of denied us 
by the forces that have dictated what we take in culturally. I went to DC. I didn't know what to do. You know, I've been going to a lot of museums of all different kinds. And I decided I would go to the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture, the, the Smithsonian. And I had a profound experience there, which one should have. But I also ended up, you know, touching base with my college roommate, Lance, Lance Mayan, who, who I lived with on and off. Yeah, I lived with him for four years, two in, in student housing and two after the student housing. And then there was never a, a, any sort of problem or rift between us, but I missed almost all of his life. And I would touch base with him occasionally, maybe three or four times in the last 35 years. But it's interesting what I have found in, in touching base with people from my past, certain people, is that there isn't that much distance uh, between us as human beings or, or our experience of each other, that there's some parts of us that remain the same, it seems, and there are some things that, that aren't quite, that I don't remember about myself and that he may not remember. So I ended up talking to him and putting some pieces together and having that experience of, of wondering you know, who we were and, and how we got to where we are and, and just reconnecting like that. So there was sort of a personal history. And I also, in New Jersey, ended up spending time with the other two guys that Lance and I lived with for two years, Anthony Calabrese and uh, Brad Stoneberg. It was kind of a profound and, and fun experience to reconnect with these guys because they're all very familiar to me, even though it's been, what, 35 to 40 years since I've seen these guys. It was just very interesting to me. But, but moving back... The museum, I, um, I don't know if you've been there, all right, but, but the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture is relatively new. It's new to me. It's right on the National Mall. Uh, it's right down the street from the Holocaust Museum. I mean, I would imagine that doubleheader would be profoundly overwhelming and, and heartbreaking and, and horrific. But one thing I, I started to realize, sadly, you know, these are two museums that are monuments, memorials, and, and also archival collections, and, and to some degree, both are a reckoning. Th these should act as, as, as sort of a, a sobering warning, but also these should be both, both the things that those two museums represent, the worst type of murderous, genocidal anti-Semitism, and then the worst type of human bondage, slavery, and then the ongoing systemic racism that has been a problem in this country and continues to be one both of these should have been in the past we should have evolved as a culture as a civilization as a country beyond what these two museums represent but but sadly it seems that that new exhibits will be added uh in the years to come and hopefully the point of view remains appropriate of both these muse museums but we don't know ultimately how this country is going to go but the fact is this is an ongoing concern the design of the museum itself is this sort of triptych? It's it's like got three levels, and it's based on a, a Nigerian piece of head of headgear you know, from a sculpture from several sculptures. And I love architecture that sort of infuses all of the things that it represents. The the sort of steelwork on the outside, I guess it's steel lattice work, uh, is is sort of based on some of the work of the blacksmiths that were were trained and and were artisans in New Orleans post slavery who had learned these crafts. Uh, while they were slaves or working, you know, as uh, indentured servants, and and 
so just the aesthetic of the place and there there was a thoughtful kind of there's a uh i believe a, a reflecting pool but there's also something that represents a porch uh in the architecture as a communal uh, uh meeting place and and place where where stories are told so it's a fascinating sort of design just on an uh on on a on an architectural level and and as i talked to uh Dr. Dwandalyn Reese, uh, who is the curator of music and performing arts at the museum, and she's been there, you know, since 2009. That was before the physical museum wasn't even opened, which which opened in 2016. But what is amazing about the reality of of not only the the subject matter of the museum, but that that th there was an effort to get this museum open for the past 100 years, a museum to represent the African-American contribution to this country. A hundred years, and now it sits in proximity to the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and the White House. And the way she kind of talked about it and the way it sort of made sense to me that it is in, in a silent conversation with all of these symbolic spaces. Like, I felt something about that. You know, like when I got, I've been to D.C. with different states of mind. When I was younger, when you get there and you see it for the first time, the monuments are overwhelming and you realize this is supposed to be overwhelming. It's supposed to represent the sort of glory and the stature and the mythic importance of, of the U.S. democracy and what, 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 what this country represents. But at different times, you know, I've been there during protests where you realize, like, you're just being dwarfed by the, the the mythological importance of of what this country is supposed to represent and you're actively trying to push back against it or work within it to make change and then you know, i went there during the trump years where it represented something gray and dark and you realize that it could be gutted and emptied and and used for completely uh, nefarious and and corrupt purposes which it has been since the beginning of u.s government and and then when you go into this museum and experience the history of slavery in a way that you will never experience it you realize that it was you know completely uh supported at different points in time by this government and then a blind eye was turned or, or legislation wasn't created to to make things correct to make things right it was a slow slow process that that is backtracking it's falling back and the way it's designed is you go there are several floors downstairs which sort of represent the history of african-american people in the 1600s, where the entire sort of global history of slavery, you know, heading into the Americas, you know, before it was even the United States of America. But it was so specific and so in-depth, and, and I couldn't take it all in. How do you really get it? It's very hard to be truly empathetic. It's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes without knowing where they walked in from to truly understand the depth of it. And when you go to this museum, you, uh, you understand the depth of it. Even if you, you, you see the shackles, you see the boats, you, you hear testimonies and read testimonies, you see the, the founding fathers and the history of, of early slavery in this country and the bloody, horrendous, inhumane treatment of human beings by other human beings, which really stood out to me as something I, it's very hard for me to understand, but it's, it's as consistent with world history as is civilization is this horrific, violent, completely demeaning treatment, murderous treatment of human-on-human -human interaction, enslaving. What I found going through it is that I had a visceral and human experience and that my empathy expanded into something human and not 
just an idea or just a, a knowledge of it it expanded because of the museum and the process because you go through those bottom floors and you see the struggle you know moving from like the 1600s all the way up through now through the civil rights movement through the voting rights act through all the through everything and even without being able to put the amount of time necessary to take it all in i was my entire brain was sort of reconfigured uh, in terms of the depth of empathy possible and an understanding and respect for that struggle. And the way I noticed it, oddly, because when you go upstairs, the upstairs is really about the African-American contributions in music, fashion, literature, dance, theater, commerce, design, all of it. And it's beautiful. And you kind of really move through it. But if you spend the correct amount of time in the darkness, in the basement, and you come up, up into the world of accomplishment, you, you, you are deeply informed and empathetic to where it all comes from in terms of African-American expression. Like I went to have an amazing visual art uh, uh, ex ex exhibit at one of the galleries called Reckoning, I believe it's called, and, and it's painting and sculpture. And the aesthetic that like just even looking at modern art or paintings uh, that represent African-American themes or by African-American artists, because I was downstairs and because something happened in my brain and in my heart, the depth of my empathy and my understanding of the aesthetic that informs all of the artwork, like it, it just expanded and gave me a, a sort of type of respect and type of empathy that I did not quite have before. I had a sort of like, yeah, it's terrible. You know, I feel bad. Uh, you, you know, it, it was a terrible thing. But now it, it was living and active. And now, like, you know, my perception of, of the experience of black Americans uh, is, is, is totally different. You know, this is a national museum and this functions as a museum. It is not ideological. It is a museum of, of history of the United States of America. And the fact that, you know, in almost half of the states that have Republican state legislatures, that you're not going to be taught this history. It's fundamentally anti-American, but is something worse than that. It's a, it is a whitewashing. It is a step backwards. So I recommend going to the, the museum, but I was happy to talk to um, Dr. Reese. She goes by Dwan. Uh, and it, we talked a bit about, uh, you know, the, the museum. And, and uh, it was profound to me. What are you finding in terms of uh, the the visitors' experience? How how like is it? What's been the experience watching people come in here for the past few years? It is, you know, when we started, we ended up with the longest dwell time um, ever. People were staying here five, six hours, whole days. The typical average is maybe one in an hour and a half uh -huh. in a museum. So people are are touched by the content. What really and I'll walk in the galleries from time to time I like I'm really heartened by the intergenerational dialogues yeah. that go on from yeah. the younger people from kids to young adults who didn't know a lot of this stuff and are visibly moved um, to people who actually lived it to people 
who never got the grasp and how they feel about this history and being witness to it in this way. It's a very um, powerful experience for people. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone walks out of there untouched in some way or another. Right. Um, and that's heartening. Yeah. Because it's giving people a chance to deal with difficult history and difficult stories, but also to affirm that what happened happened to real people that the transatlantic slave trade, we were dealing with people as commodities, that you, it's hard to not point out how horrific that system was. And then what you happen when you see in the other exhibits is the legacy of it that we're still grappling with today. Yeah, that's, that was what I, I realized that was sort of horrifying when I was coming over here is that, you know, between this and and some of the other monuments and even the Holocaust Museum is that there's still an evolving history of of this type of hatred and violence yes. that it's not finished yet like this isn't behind us this isn't a memorial or, or uh, you no. know it's, it's very much we'd like to say or our new director um, living history yeah we're living it at the moment and I bet there's any moment that we're dealing with right now that you could find some place in the museum where you feel like it's history repeating itself and in, in also some of the stuff that I, I found to be like it, it. I don't think I ever had a full picture of it, not just necessarily what slavery built or what it did to this country, but you know how much of skill sets and everything that they didn't, you know, that weren't here until these people were kidnapped and brought here. I didn't know so much of that stuff, and I don't know that I know it now. But I do know that I have a much broader understanding of of what what happened historically. Sure. I think in, even in school, you, you're not taught that. I don't remember hardly anything There's kind of a school. basic, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a basic, even, you know, it was in high school in the 80s. Yeah. It's kind of a basic narrative. All these intricate stories, whether you're dealing with African Americans, Native Americans, and the different point of view. Yeah. Nothing. That's, that's never elevated to the point where you have a complicated but nuanced understanding right. of how our history played out right well, i think they, that's why they have i guess entire majors in college that were are based on that i mean it's hard to bring all that together but i think they did it here mm -hmm. to some degree you know i mean it's all down there but it's like you can only i mean i had no idea about the expansiveness of the global slave trade yes yes we've got a center for the study of global slavery um we're working with other uh collaborating partners we'll be doing an exhibit about that in about two to three years, because it's a global concern. It's an ongoing, can still contemporary concern. Isn't that crazy? Um, and we don't, we're not particularly attuned to that. We weren't taught that way. Yeah. I mean, I think the concept when I was growing up, it just American slavery, I never thought about the global nature. And even I love the prehistory that we get before we get to the transatlantic slave trade Yeah. about just globalism and building societies and capitalism it just all plays out that's the thing that really comes through in the in those in the lower galleries is that by all this sort of accounts uh, of of the experience of, of slavery or or people writing about it who were there all the way through now even but i mean the lynchings and the assassinations and stuff is that when i'm down there i can't understand how another human being can do that to somebody else and and the fact that it exists makes me very uh, um, frightened for the future, in a sense, that people are capable 
of of the worst possible things you can imagine. And and I think it's hard to wrap your brain about that. You know it if you read it in history books. But to go down there and see it like you guys have laid it out here, you feel it. And I don't know that that's always possible. So let me ask you this question. The seeing versus the knowing. What was the difference for you in that gallery? Was it the knowledge, the exhibition, the objects? What made it real? I, I don't think it was. I, I think it was the the way it was laid out and the thoroughness of the history. And and in terms of like when you really think about, I think some of the the nuances around the idea of people being, you know, literally taken from their homes, from their communities, from their family, and then on through families being separated in you know in slave auctions and whatnot. And I knew it, but seeing it written and then seeing some of the artifacts, like yes, yeah, certainly the shackles and the, you know I'd seen the pictures of the ships before. But there was something about the narratives and the the immersive experience of being in there, the voices even, that that all contributed to me having a more uh, human sense of it, the yeah. human interaction with it. Yeah, and I think that's why it works. Yeah. Abstract to human beings. And then you, in certain ways, when you start to hear these stories, you try to imagine what would it be, you know, if I were separated from my parents as a child, forcibly. I mean, you can't imagine you can't, you can't it. You can't imagine it. And the pain and the... Right. It's very hard to, to get in touch with uh, the, uh, the correct amount of empathy because it's almost devastating. Yeah. You know? There was something about not only the in- inhumanity of, of how people were treated, but the fact that they couldn't get this place built as a monument to African-Americans' contribution to American life and culture up until a few years ago. I mean, it's still not right. I mean, you know, here you've got this entire rice business built in the Carolinas by African farmers who knew how to do it, and they got nothing for it but misery and enslavement. And and that that concept, that idea of not giving credit where credit's due and not, you know, uh, having a just society exists. That, why would this be a question to put this place up? 10 years ago? 20 years ago even? I mean, it's crazy. You know, things move slowly. You know, there are things that are happening today, and it's like, this should, what? This should have not been an issue at this point. I know. And it's like, I come out of there thinking, like, there is some serious part of the Civil War that has not been resolved. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just as we have not reckoned with some of the negative aspects of the country. I mean, the yeah. discussion over race, the, the Civil War. I mean, there's these images... Um, and, and if you can't acknowledge something, it's really difficult to heal. Yeah, and the, the, well, the, yeah. I mean, I went to that museum in uh, Alabama. The the yeah, I haven't been to that to one the yet. lynching museum mm-hmm. with the with the hanging monoliths. Oh my god, that was like that leveled me. Like in in the same way that like for some reason the art really connects with me. Even even those bricks behind Jefferson downstairs. I mean, it's a similar kind of thing. Where, where you have this representation, these symbolic representations that put the numbers in, in perspective, you know? Uh, so what, how does this, in terms of when you have conversations about how the museum evolves, what are those conversations? Like, are you gonna, re, are you gonna be constantly curating new exhibits? Like, like the painting exhibit and the art exhibit upstairs, The Reckoning, is that something that gallery, you know, is gonna change quarterly or half every it year? It won't quarterly. Uh, that was a big redo when we opened that last year. So it was a revisioning of that gallery. Yeah. Um, it was a permanent gallery. I envision um, 
more incarnations of showing the artwork and engaging it with the rest of the subject matter of the museum. We generally rotate objects on a yearly basis. Of course, COVID put that on hold. Um, we have temporary ex- exhibition gallery. You know, at some point, we may think about the redoing the permanent exhibits, but that's still a ways off. But we're also in, investigating new places to have um, more space to do more content. A lot of that's going to take place digitally because yeah. the possibilities, not only getting the content out of people, but what we can do with it. You know, even with an exhibition, you can only do so much. So we have something now that we just launched this fall, the Searchable Museum, mm-hmm. which takes that Slavery and Freedom Gallery but makes it a digital online component and helps establish some of the relationships and stories that you really couldn't do spaciously yeah. on exhibit floor. So you may want to check that out. So you can just sort of like do little p- bits and pieces of, 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 of shifting up the exhibits a little bit. I noticed some, some pieces were missing, but obviously you know, some of the larger things are going to stay there because they're permanent, but there's artifacts that you can just move in and out. Oh, absolutely. Huh? I mean, and that's our key purpose is to make the collection accessible to the public. And so the exhibits are just one way. The, a lot of the research that goes on, publications. Yeah. Um, we have a partnership with Smithsonian Folkways. We do recordings. Oh, the recordings. Yeah, I get, yeah we just great. did the hip-hop anthology last year. With them? Yes, that is was that a partnership. Yet? Oh, yeah, it came out in August. On vinyl? I wonder. Couldn't afford to do it on vinyl. Oh, it's not, sorry. It was... You know, yeah, people yeah. ask that. It was a whole, a whole thing. It, how, yeah. many, how many? How many? We, uh, we had 129 tracks. Oh, wow. Nine CDs. And I, I know the CDs are obsolete, but it's a 300-page illustrated book with photographs, objects, and essays. But yeah. really putting uh, a history around hip-hop. Yeah. Um, and we did that kind of, it was kind of a ground-up project where we really brought in you know the hip hop community to select the tracks oh, yeah? and everything oh, like I gotta, that. I gotta look for that. It's so weird that that's the Jefferson Monument right there, right? Yes. You can just see it. Uh huh. And it's hard not to to you know that that kind of yeah. If you sit here, yeah, you think about that. You saw that Jefferson statue, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there yeah. it is, right here. There's the monument. And these conversations, these spaces, you know, just they're instantly in dialogue with one another. So now, how do you feel about, in terms of the museum, like you're, you're talking about this online presence, but we're now you know, at this, you know, this place in history where they might not allow that in half the schools in this country. We're a resource. Yeah, We're right. a resource for the public. Yeah. And we will keep providing this kind of content, engaging in a variety of issues, and that is part of our mission. Right. You know, we're the public's institution, and this is the work we do. So we will always be doing that. Right, and and what separates it from a, a philosophical thing is that it's an archive. It's a histor- historical museum. Yes. It's not, you know, you, it doesn't have an agenda other than to educate and to represent the history of the country. Educate, represent the history of the country from an African-American diasporic point of view. Thank you for talking to me. Sure, thanks yeah. for visiting, yeah, and you have to great. come back. Well, I'm going to have to come back <laughs> to finish. So, I, I don't know really what to say about this other than I've, I've been going to a lot of museums and I've been reflecting on a lot of things. And, and just because of, I don't know, wherever my heart is or my mind is or whatever my age is, you know, I'm more available to be a little more, you know, empathetic, open hearted. And, and it's very heartbreaking and satisfying to, to engage on this level. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we all engage with our shared history and not just, 
you know, rely on past memories or, or, or just, you know, chunks of information that informs our emotions that, you know, we can have control over. Because if you go to this museum, it's profoundly human and profoundly horrific and, 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 and dug in deep into our collective experience. And, and moving on from that, you know, I, yeah, it just so happened that I'm in DC and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to put things together in terms of my sense of self and, and who I am and what, what did I come from? And, uh, it just seems to be going, it's ongoing thing. And I'm pretty clear on who I am, but I, I'm kind of like, I don't know who I am from other people's point of view. And, uh, you know, it was just interesting because I figured like, well, fuck it, let's just talk to Lance. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people throughout my life I could talk to, even people in my current life. But I just, I hadn't talked to Lance for a while and we were very close. But we lived together for four years and we worked together in places. And uh, we caught up and I recorded it. This is me talking to my old roommate, Lance Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Hey, buddy. How are you, man? How are you? Good to see you. What's my life? What's my real life? Retirement can kill you. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. What? When? How long have you been retired? Probably a month. <laughs> I'm already half in the grave. <laughs> what? I mean, what, is it? Well, I, you start doing stupid things. So, like, uh, you know, I, I'm retired from being a chef because I don't want to run kitchens yeah, anymore. But right. I still want to work. And a buddy of mine is a landscaper, and it's pretty physical work. And yeah, you know, I'm 59 going to 25, but yeah. feeling like I'm 59. Yeah. And climbing in and out of a truck, and what you, I fell into the bed of his truck, and then <laughs> some fucking woman at the end is going, "Are you okay?" And I wasn't, and uh, so I've been in pain for like four days. Because so, uh, so this is your retirement. Yeah, this yeah, is great. how I enjoy myself. You did it. You did. I it. did. You yeah, finally I'm made finally it. there. <laughs> but wait, how, you're at my age, right? Uh, a little older. I'm, I'll, I'll be sixty this year. Okay, so I'm going to be fifty nine this year. Yeah, so a year. And uh, and because like I think about retiring, and I think because in my brain, even though I don't live a life that's like that. I yeah. think it's, it feels like something that we're supposed to be working towards, like you, to stop. Wasn't that why I worked in the first place? I, so you can, well, I, yeah, so you well, can retire that's eventually. an old idea. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that's really the idea still, but it's what we were kind of brought up I'm with. I'm good with it. <laughs> Trust me. You know, I've been working for over 40 years, and man, oh, it does, you know, and I've always been like, you know, the work workaholic, you know, yeah. drive that shit into my kids. And, yeah. And now they're going, but you don't want to work anymore. I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. done. And but, but are you- About you, face. Then why are you fucking in a truck? 
well, you know, it's, you're outside. Yeah, but that's <laughs> nice. And oh, wait, I didn't tell you this. So the first yeah. week, yeah, I punctured my arm. You can see what's left of it. I punctured my arm with a with this cotter pin on the bottom of a wheelbarrow. Yeah, loaded into the same freaking truck I fell in. Yeah, and I had to get a tetanus shot. So that was my first week. And then this week. <laughs> I fell trying to swing my leg over the top of his bed, and I fell right into it at a nursery. And you know, I uh, look like an ass. So this, and, I mean, do you feel like you deserve this? <laughs> what the pain? Yeah. The well, what are you I don't just know. Making a fool. Somebody's somebody's getting the revenge on me. That's I for sure. But I, here's the thing: I don't I don't understand because I really feel like I could just do nothing because I feel like I do that most of the time only because I'm self-employed, so it never. It's not like I'm going to work. Right. Right. So it's never felt like that for me. But I worked my ass off. But I really feel like I could do nothing. But now uh, talking to you, I don't know. Well, uh, don't do landscaping. Well, no, but I'll tell I, that right now. But that's the kind of fucking thing I would think I could do. My father, you know, he retired for a while and he be, tried to be a mailman. Oh, that's, that's not easy. No, I know. It's actually hard. There's dogs. There's, the bag is heavy. Right. But you, what are you doing? You're mo- I don't know. I'm thinking I'm young. <laughs> you know, I go to the gym. Yeah. It's not the same. No. So I was trying to think, like, because when was the last time I saw you before? Had to be, had to be uh, before COVID, right? The last time I did this place? Kennedy, the Kennedy Center. Center? Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, and we went out to dinner and we caught up. It's so weird, yeah, man. Yeah, at the Ritz. Because when I hang out with you, I don't, I don't, even though we never see each other, I did it with Jimmy, too. Jim Loftus, I saw. Yeah, I remember Jim. Yep. And Cliff, you didn't know, from my freshman year of college. There's just that period in our life where, you, you know, I, I see you and I, it doesn't feel different. No. You don't feel that different to me. No. <laughs> I mean, I know we've had entire lifetimes, but this frequency is the same. Am I the same? Yeah, I okay. think so. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, uh, I think about it today and right over here. It's yeah. like, how long have we known each other? I mean, sophomore year had to be... 1983? 83, right? Yeah. So it's like Cause, yeah, Because I transferred. Yeah, it's like 36 years. Yeah, it's a long it's freaking time. It's nuts. Yeah. And, but, the, but there's this whole chunk of it that, you know, I don't know. You, you know, I don't know where you... I, the, I remember, I was thinking, there's these bits and pieces after college. I didn't see you that much. But we ended up... We lived together for sophomore... Junior, senior. The senior, we had the apartment together. On, junior in, and senior. There's a videotape <clears throat> of us playing air guitar and air drums to an entire side of Pink Floyd's <laughs> Animals somewhere. I'm sure we are, you know, there's some influence <laughs> but, there. But do you remember, like, I don't remember how... <laughs> well, I remember what happened at that apartment is, like, you started seeing Kathy, and she moved in, and there was... I just came home once, and you did sectioned off half of the living room <laughs> with, a, with, like, a sheet. Well, the, you, my, my bedroom was the size of the bed. I know, I know that, but... but it, was it was really like, small. I just walk in, there's just like a curtain... Cutting the living room in Yeah, well, I'm not an architect. <laughs> but when, there was no discussion. It was just sort of like, all right. You were like, yeah. That yeah, was funny. It didn't Because yeah, your bedroom like, was a patio. It was, yeah, it was. It was, it was tiny. Like a, it was a, a porch. Patio. Yeah, a porch. Yeah. When did, like, do you remember us meeting? Like, do you remember yes. how we got? No, I do. I remember on part with the park drive. Is that the street? Yeah, that was on park drive. Oh, yeah. I had already gotten there. there. I had, yeah, my folks, yeah, we got there. Vic and, and uh, then, uh, right? yeah, Patricia. Yeah. Yep. And then, uh, then you showed up. And yeah. You were the first guy I met. Right. <laughs> right. There's that weird awkwardness. Yeah. Like, oh, what yeah. kind of guy are you? What are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> no, we hit it off, though. Yeah, I think, we did. Uh, and I do remember this. I remember well, records. It was about records. Yep. Music. Yeah. And uh, what do you remember? Do you remember going to uh, the? Remember they had an RA, right? We had an RA for the building, right? It was a girl, a woman. Yeah, I don't know. Her I don't remember name. her name. So she had, an, and I remember this is Kathy. You know, yeah. now my wife. But her first impression of us was we showed up at the RA meeting with all everybody else from the apartment, yeah. and you and I had bathrobes on and cowboy boots. <laughs> She just thought it wasn't a good look. <laughs> you know, she wasn't impressed. What were we doing? I don't know. Just being ourselves. 
you know, uh, no one else. Uh, was there. We certainly didn't care what people thought. You know, remember we used to go down to the duck pond and yeah, you know, take shrooms. Yeah, and, yeah, and sit in the trees. So we can talk freely now. You're not worried about your kids here. Uh, they've stuff. already heard other shit. <clears throat> you, had to, you had to come clean. Yeah, yeah. Actually, due to your show, I know. I remember what. <laughs> how, what's the story on that? Who? How that happen? Uh, a buddy of mine who's, yeah. who listens to you regularly. Um, yeah. I guess you mentioned it was when you had uh, uh, what the hell's his name. I'm sorry if it gets hot. I just didn't want sure. Uh, Polly Shore. Oh, Polly Shore. Sure, you were yeah. interviewing him, yeah. and then you came up with some story. Well, it wasn't made up. But it actually happened. Oh yeah. Where the two of us were. I think we dropped acid on Halloween, and we dressed like well, not intentionally, but gay rockabilly. <laughs> We didn't, because we, we, had, were, we didn't we, know what to, to dress as. We were and, pressured for a costume. Yeah, we wanted to go to parties, and we ended up just greasing our hair up and wearing like leather. Yeah, and then uh, and then we ended up in the basement of that apartment. Well, we went to the apartment, and somebody must have pulled the fire alarm. Like as soon as we got there. Oh yeah. So yeah, everybody yeah. bailed, and then you and I were like, "Well, we're still in the fucking apartment." Let's. Right. So we went. We went down to the basement and, we, and started running around with uh, heating ducts on our heads. Heating ducts on our heads, like laughing. Our yeah, asses and then off. the fire department walked in yeah. with axes and shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking out and literally said, "Take me to your leader," and we ran out laughing like idiots. But <laughs> why wouldn't we? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's that story. But then what happened was getting back to my kids. Oh yeah, 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 out, yeah. A buddy of mine listened to that episode. Yeah, and then realized you're talking about me because you yeah. mentioned my name. Yeah, and he goes, "Hey, you know Mark Marin?" I go, "Yeah, Mark and I, you know, I've known him for years. We went yeah. to school together." Yeah. And so he made a copy of the CD. He, he made a copy, right? right. And uh, gave me a copy so yeah, I could yeah. hear it. Back before you knew how to and use a, uh, have an iPod or anything. And then, of course, it got <laughs> it got to uh, some other friends of ours, <laughs> which he gave a copy of it to. And my wife is going. You know, the kids are going to find out. I said, Nick, you know, they were younger, right? My yeah. son was 17 at the time. Like, they don't know who Mark is. They're not going to listen. They have no idea. Yeah. Well, I was at our pool, and yeah. one of Nick's friends came up to me and said, Mr. Mayan, uh, oh, no, my wife came up to me. She goes, you're busted. I go, what? She goes, Mark Marin. I go, why? She goes, you know, Kevin's friend of my son's came yeah. up to me and said, Mrs. Mine, was Mr. Mine Mark Marin's roommate in college? And she knew right away. Yeah. Trouble. You know, the, you know she, uh, he must have heard that episode where <laughs> you and I dressed as gay rockabillys on acid. Yeah. So We're, after that, I couldn't say shit to my kids about anything. I was like, that was it. <laughs> I blew it. Yeah, it's, it's over. Yeah, no. Do what you want. I, but I wonder how, I don't know, I don't have kids, but I guess that you really have to hide that shit in order to be disciplined there. Well, yeah. Can't you still warn them and say, like, it wasn't good? But no, all oh, right. So fun. <laughs> yeah. you know, I know it sounded like fun the way Mark described it, but it was terrible. It was an awful experience, <laughs> and I only did it 10 more times. Yeah. <laughs> we did do it another time. I, it's so weird because I, I knew... We spend so much fucking time together, so you really do know people. I was sort of trying to figure that out why, because the guy Cliff, who I was in freshman year with, I saw no. him a couple weeks ago, and like I knew that guy for a year. But it's because it was that time in our lives where it's just like it makes an imprint. Yeah. And then those people get frozen like that, and then you see him later, and you're like, "Is that the same guy? How is it not going to be the same guy unless you have a brain injury or something?" But you're pretty much the same. I am. I am. I think I remember, dude. I think I got you into the food business. You did. It was at, uh, edibles. But yeah, was it edibles? But then I started thinking: Didn't we both work at the veggie cafeteria? We worked at AR, was ARA. Was that what it was? Right, what was the right. food that comp? was the food company. Yeah. But we were in the veggie one. Oh, I, I, I remember working we, for the cafeteria. Yeah, yeah, and then serving. That was what I. We, but you weren't cooking back then. We were just serving, right? You don't Probably. Remember? You don't remember? Anything? I don't remember anything. I remember there was this. I don't big, think I was cooking. I don't, no, I don't ever remember cooking. handling the I remember the spatula. black dude that was the head cook there. And I remember I was in the veggie cafeteria because I used to name. We were just fucking joking around. And the veggie cafeteria, we weren't veggies, but it, it was better food. 
and I remember naming some of the items, and I put it up on the board. You got people, to name the items? Well, like they would have like you know mozzarella casserole or something. I put something on there like the Pride of Kings. <laughs> and the pride, that explains it. Yeah, and then yeah. people people would come up and go, "I'll take the Pride of Kings," and I just laughed and laughed to myself. <laughs> it contains mozzarella. Yeah. Do you remember you were in a musical? Yeah. And you had like one. I remember you had one scene where you did a noose thing. You're like, yep. Like this. Yeah, I asked him parts. Steve Brill got me into that. He did? He told me to go try out for it. For the musical. Well, Chicago. Because he thought you, because you always were singing and yeah, you know, I'm a goof. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I did it. Yeah, and you did Chicago. Because yeah. I remember like there was one night where, where the fuck were we? We were, in New, we were in Boston and we were getting fucked up somewhere. And I had that old, my brother's shitty Camaro. And we were like, let's go to New York. Yeah. And we, and we had no money. We had no money and no place to go. And it was like one in the morning and we committed it was so dumb. It was me, you, Brill, and I think Gaffney. I don't know if Gaffney was there, but I remember we just go to my aunt's house yes. in New Jersey. You remember getting pulled over by the cop? Kinda. And it was I thought it was like McLeod. He's, he came he, up and goes, How long are you plan to stay in town? Like, it, it, who the fuck are you? I mean, who asked okay. that question? I kind of remember you know, that. A Hollywood when movie. When we got into Jersey? Like we yeah. 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 Well, we're just here to see his grandmother. Yeah. So I don't know, in a couple hours, sir, is that enough? And then we crashed. Yeah. In, in your basement on the floor in that in that rug basement and then we're like well i guess we gotta go to the city yeah we went to like, soho yeah and then we did nothing we ate lunch and left i think brill paid for it i think he, had a, he was the only one with the credit card oh really i think so i think he bought us lunch <laughs> and then you were like i gotta get to rehearsal full circle yeah we had to go to work or something and drive back do you remember that I, yeah oh my god i remember not having any sleep and you know we ran every toll yeah oh that's right that was crazy. We couldn't pay for a toll. I know. We, it, it was just so dumb. It was so dumb. Yeah, because it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. We didn't know what to do. Yeah. It's like, well, let's go to New York. It's not what that far. Do you, like, do you remember when I <laughs> wanted to do comedy? Yeah, and you were doing um, open mic nights. So you know I'd go up to like, I don't know if it was played against Sam's, but there's another one that was up there in all Sam's. Yeah, there was played against Sam's was definitely up there. Really? So that was during college? Yes. When I first tried it? Yep. And it I may have been senior year, but I do remember it. A couple of times. Yeah. And it was brutal, right? Well, you're better now. <laughs> <laughs> then you gotta I got, cut your teeth at some point, right? <laughs> no, I know, but I just was like, I kind of remember like trying to do jokes in like, I was interested in doing it because I, I know that me and Brill did the team thing, but you saw me by myself because that was after he graduated. So it yeah. must have been that summer. But there was a night where I tried to do it for some college thing. And I just remember, and I'll, I'll cop to it. I had one of my own jokes, and then I did uh, one Woody Allen joke, and then I did like anything to get through it. And then, uh, but like, but I kind of remember always being interested in it and doing that other shit. It's wild. Well, I do remember going to a couple places with you in actual comedy clubs, waiting around, and well, having you. And you're, there was an open mic night, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. Could just go yeah. up, and you were able to do it. And you did a couple minutes, and yeah, yeah, it was rough, but I mean, you got better. So, but was, was I fucking out of my mind? Was I like panicked? It takes and, balls, and yeah, was that crazy and panicked? I remember being panicked. I remember you like rehearsing to yourself prior to getting <laughs> up there. You know, a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of. I can't. I don't remember that part of myself. I don't remember the the rehearsing part. Yeah, but I yeah. must have done it. Telling your jokes over and over in your head. And, yeah, but you know, when do we... You did one where you kind of stacked up the chairs. I right, the I went to the Museum of Modern Art. Was that what it was? Yeah. You, yeah. yeah I and, put the, the mic stand on the top of the stool. Yes. And I think I hang something from the top and I'm like, and so this I was just art. at the Museum of Modern Art and I just wanted to sit there to get the first laugh. And it kind of worked. I remember it so worked. So you remember that joke? I do remember that joke. So did I. That's pretty good. That's yeah. six. <laughs> See? <laughs> I, remember, I remember a couple of jokes from that set. 
I just remember being out back smoking. We were both smoking. You don't still smoke, right? No. Yeah, I quit a long time ago. I mean, I haven't, like, I got, to, I was on nicotine lozenges forever. Oh, really? Yeah, I just, I couldn't get off them, but I've been off everything now for a few years. I don't even like the smell. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I, it's like. Yeah, I notice it. I don't know if I don't like it, but I don't know. Uh, how long has it been since you smoked? Oh, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999. Have you had any major uh, health things? Like what? Heart attack? No, nothing like that. I've injured myself several times. <laughs> I do a lot of that. <laughs> I play yesterday. softball, and so you yesterday. think it's like there's this kind of a benign sport. You know, oh, yeah. it's a nice bunch of older guys getting together playing softball. Yeah. I've had surgery because of it. Yeah. I mean, fractured uh, my finger last year. Uh, but everything yeah. else is all right? Yeah, health-wise, other than that, other than the, And your mom's still around. Yeah, yeah, she's still doing really well. That's She'll be great. 88 in July. 88. Yep. Yeah, she loves you. Oh, yeah. She saw you in respect. Oh, yeah. Right? So she goes, oh, Michael, I didn't realize you had such a big role. Yeah, I remember them well. Yeah. I remember Vic, yeah. Hyper Vic. Oh, yes. How'd he pass away? Uh, ALS. Oh, really? Gehrig's, yep. Oh, they take. Oh, yeah, that was brutal. a tough person to get that because, you know, he was so, so opposite. So wired. You know, I mean, yeah, he was nuts. And your your brother Pat, and then the other one, Farron. Farron, yep. yep. Farron, the, the, the giant. No, well, Pat was bigger, but Farron was the, Farron was the ex-Marine. I just very remember intense. that time, man. You remember that time where I don't know why he stopped by the the place when we lived on the second floor, and he had his guns with him. Because <laughs> he goes everywhere with his guns. Got to have your gun. But, but have- do you remember, like, you know, I hadn't met him before, and he stopped by, and you and I were in the kitchen, and he was in your room, which had that amazing bay window. You had that corner yeah, room, yeah. And we nice walk room. in, and he's just sighting people. <laughs> Oh, he wasn't really going to shoot anybody. No, I know that, but it was just that moment well, where we looked at each he other. He did shoot a pan once. A pan? Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, yeah, it's a, an odd story. I, he's probably the only person alive who's ever done it. Is he around still? Oh, yeah, yeah. But he um, he called me. This is as I was, you know, I'm a chef at the, this point. Yeah. And he called me up one day. And he goes, hey, Lance, I uh, I bought a, a cast iron skillet. He yeah. goes, and I'm trying to season it so it becomes, you know, stick, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, what it, like, it's so a he, chef's question. Yeah, so it wanted yeah. to be like nonstick, right? Yeah. So, he goes, how do you season it? He goes, you got directions. You can put oil in it, yeah. bake it. You can yeah. turn it on, let the oil get hot, do that sort of thing. And there's a few ways you could do it. Yeah. And he goes, all right. So he does it. He calls me up a couple of days later. He goes, God damn it. Because I, I seasoned this pan. I've done it like three different freaking ways. He goes, the shit still sticks to it because I'm really getting pissed. I go, okay, try this, try this, try this. And then I don't hear from him for a while. And uh, I don't know, maybe a month or two goes by and he called me. We're just talking. I yeah. go, hey, by the way, how's that, you know, your nonstick pan coming along? <laughs> he goes, I shot it. Yeah. I go, what? He goes, yeah, the fucking thing. I got so mad one day. I was putting, I was cooking fish in it and, it and I did all the things right and it keeps sticking. So I got pissed off. I took it out in the back, put it against the tree and shot it with my 44. Oh my God. I go, wow. Okay. You had neighbors. Did it bounce off of that thing? Uh, no, well, it's it went right through So it? it went right through it. Oh yeah. So I said, uh, well, how are you cooking your fish? He goes, I put the fish in the oil in the pan, turn the heat on. I'm like, wait a minute, what'd you do? Yeah. He goes, I put the fish in the oil in the pan, and I turn the heat on. I go, so you put it in a cold pan? Yeah. He goes, well, it's going to get hot. I go, you can't cook shit in a cold pan. It's going to stick every fucking time. Yeah. I go, you shot up an innocent pan because you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, you know, but by the way, it doesn't make it Teflon. Yeah. It no, just, no, I know. You know I do the cast helps. iron thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't expect it to be like a yeah. nonstick pan. And he pan. truly bought it and believed really that that's what it was that, going to become. It was going to yeah, be just like a, like teflon, a teflon pan. pan. And so that pan got What'd what that guy coming. end up doing with his wife, Farron? Uh, he went to work with uh, my father and brother. Okay. They, they took over the company. Do they still got it? They sold it two years ago. Oh, yeah? So yep. they're both retired? Yep, two or three years ago. Yep. No yeah, they're older than me. Yeah. So, yeah. And everyone's got kids? Yep. Yeah, two, two, and two. Wow. Yep. 
So let's so let's catch up with that. So after college, like I went directly home, and then you went. But you didn't go immediately to culinary school. I remember it was no, took a while. Ten years. Ten years before you did. I was thirty-one. Where and what were you? Where were you working? I was a photographer for a minute oh, in that's Boston. Right. Yeah. What were you taking pictures of? Uh, grip and grin stuff. It was. Um, I remember we had to do the Boston Marathon. Oh, so and the owner of this guy was he was a dick. You're like a stringer. Like, I guess is that what you call it. Call him. So I mean, we had different assignments, yeah. but um, he wanted. We had our jackets, you know, for the marathon. And sure. Shit like that was cool collateral. And I remember that year. So this guy Mark, who was the owner, um, we weren't in, in the places he wanted us to be yet. And then he literally told like the marshal or whoever of the marathon. He goes, "You gotta, you gotta hold the marathon from starting." And the guy's like, "Who the fuck are you? <laughs> We're gonna stop the Boston Marathon so you can get your photographers in place." He goes, "No, you get you guys in place. We're gonna go without you, not or you know." Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this guy had balls. I mean, he just like you thought he could actually dictate how the Boston Marathon was to be stop run. The marathon. And uh, yeah, they didn't listen to him, of course. So, so you're a photographer, and that craps out. Well, I, I ended up, uh, yeah, sort of. So I, I was doing stock photography, but it takes too much work. Yeah. So I, I sold some stuff. I got, you know, I was in some magazines. Mm. And uh, I ended up going part-time at a at a camera store. Yeah. And then they're like, well, after like a in few Boston? months. Yeah. Underground cameras in Cambridge Square. Yeah. And after a few months, they said, do you want to just go full-time? I'm like, yeah, all right. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> so I did. And then they asked me if I wanted to be a manager, and then I was doing that for like eight years. And that's you what managed a camera store? Yeah, for yeah for a while. I have, I have no fucking idea. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the fuck. Well, where was I? See, we it's so weird that, that we have these like very specific college memories, but then like there's all this this huge swath of time where we didn't talk to each other at all. I had no idea you are managing a fucking yeah, camera Yeah, for then it was Ritz Camera bought them out, and then I worked for Ritz, and then now they're out. They're defunct. They went out of business. Yeah, because I remember staying at that apartment in the North End, and you were trying to make aspic. Like, you were in cooking school, and you were sitting there trying. No, I couldn't have been at the North End. You sure? I wasn't in culinary school until I was here. Really? Yeah. Were you yeah. trying to be a cook? then because I, I always did stuff i mean was uh-huh. i trying to make an aspic really yeah i just that's sort of what i remember i had gelatin and yeah stock. yeah yeah i remember like you were working on it i must have gotten that i was probably doing some recipe i was gonna make some shit yeah <clears throat> I, don't know. I remember making a really bad uh some kind of pie with with uh dried thyme and it's supposed to be fresh thyme yeah so it didn't just, work out it was f- fucking horrible <laughs> My parents are coming over. I made this thing. I was like, you guys can't eat this. Oh, my God. So luckily, we lived in the North End. There are a lot of restaurants. <laughs> there were good restaurants. <clears throat> yeah. but, when, but so so you didn't... When, so when did you move here and why? To D.C.? I moved down here. Uh, well, we moved down here because uh, I got transferred. For the camera store? Yeah, to take on one of the bigger stores down here. Really? Yeah. So and that was in, I don't know, 90-something. And then what, did, what makes you decide you're going to be a chef? Well... I had been doing the camera thing for like eight years, and you know, I was, I was going, yeah, retail sucks. Yeah. You know, after a while, I was like, yeah, I don't want to fucking do this yeah. anymore. So, Kathy, who, of course, you tell her something, and she, next thing you know, you have a book. Yeah. She's great that way. <laughs> but uh, so I just happened to mention, because I always liked to cook. You remember you yeah. and I cooked, and yeah, I, you know, yeah. I just it's liked it. Cook, yeah. yeah, man. And I still uh, cook all the fucking time. I just said, I, I said to her, I said, you know what? I don't know. I, I think I might want to go back to culinary school. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, I went, we went on vacation with my brother Farron and his wife. Yeah. And we went to, St. Martin's or one of these fucking islands. Yeah. And, you know, we're out on the beach. It's a great restaurant. You know, it just looked very cool. I was like, man, I really think I want to go back to culinary school and open up some freaking Caribbean restaurant somewhere on a beach. Caribbean that was restaurant. My, well, I don't know. The yeah. big dream. In, yeah. yeah, it was. Beach restaurant. And a uh, beach restaurant. Yeah. So that was my, uh, you know, 
what got me Your thinking white about it. Moment. Yes. Yeah. And um, you know, it took a while, but then I got we were back in uh, down here, and yeah. I just happened to say to her, I was like, you know, I think I want to go to culinary school. Yeah. So like I said, sure enough, there's a book, and we're yeah. looking through shit, and there was a good French school, very close. Yeah. I you know it wasn't like a four year degree. It wasn't yeah. like going to CIA and doing yeah. all that kind of stuff. I yeah. don't you know I've already got the degree, so I just right. want to learn how to cook, and that right. was a perfect school for me. Two so, years. One year. One, one year. year. Yep. One year. All you did was cook, and you just went every day. You learned new recipes, and uh, I got an the externship. Basics. Yeah, basically it was mainly French. Yeah. But you had to do. Um, I got an externship at a French restaurant, and I ended up staying there for almost five years. At the restaurant. Yeah. As a sous chef or. Uh, no, you start off as a nothing. You, you six fifteen nothing, hour nothing with a hat extern yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh i yeah. stayed four and a half years because i i worked my way through all those stations yeah and i was the only so one who ever did that restaurant. there yeah. you learned the business no, i did i learned you know all the different positions all you know i was a saucier a poissonier i did pastries and other shit yeah and then uh you know i was there like four and a half years and then it kind of plateaued then me and the the sous chef just kept drinking every day too much. And I was like, you know what? This this is going nowhere. I can't keep doing this shit. I mean, I'm I'm going to a five o'clock. You know, it's five o'clock. I'm buzzed. Were you drinking for a Saturday night? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The restaurant was called La Ferme. It's a, it's still there. Yeah. Uh, busy as shit on a Saturday night. We could do 280 to 300 covers. Jeez. And it was me. And I was I was the the saucier. So I was yeah. on meats. Yeah. And um, the sous chef was the poissonier. And then we just had a guy, uh, Chef Tournant, who would kind of help us plate stuff up and we had a girl a garbanger do that kind of stuff yeah and we'd just get our asses handed to us i mean it was fucking brutal <laughs> and uh i mean i'm I, like i couldn't physically do that now right yeah. i tried to yeah, i'll just go back and be a cook somewhere no really no, but yeah. you can get on a fucking truck with a mower yeah oh yeah i'm a man yeah i'm a man that's <laughs> but, but the cooking thing is was crazy yeah i couldn't it's crazy yeah. that i'm yeah. just thinking about dupes that aren't stopping right now can make me panic when you just look up at that thing and there's nothing but tickets, it's like, yeah. what the fuck? How is yep. this ever going to happen? People want their pancakes. Yep. But I, can't, I imagine it's horrible to Then balance. the chef owner would be expediting. He's calling all these fucking tickets. And, oh, that guy on the wheel. Oh, my God. Well, we, ours were up on, you know, they're up above us. Uh-huh. But, um, I mean, we could have 30, 35 tickets and they're just calling like, you know. But our stuff is like Chateaubriand and, you know, Dover Soul and all this kind of shit we're putting out. And I had like, you know, all these different elements to each plate. And it's like, oh, my God. Uh, and I fucked up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For a while I did. I, I remember yeah. that just from working with you at Edibles. There was a moment where there were so many dupes and you just have this moment. So I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if we're going to be yeah. able to do it. Yeah. Oh my God. But, um, so you burned out. No, nah, it didn't burn out there. I mean, I was just, I got, I kind of plateaued. So when did then, you have kids? When I was there, yeah. uh, I was still in culinary school when Nick was born. Oh yeah. So he was born. You 90- got two. I met one recently. Yeah. Not yet. Jill. Yeah. What? She, 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 she kind of takes after her old man. <laughs> yeah. it's a problem. How so? Fuck. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> she seems like a character. She is. She's yeah. very funny too. Yeah, yeah, she did yeah, get my yeah. sense of humor. Yeah. Um. She's yeah. She's actually very witty. Is she all right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She. Uh, she came with somebody. I can't remember who. Her boyfriend at the time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the girl. There was some girl she was supposed to bring to see you. Yeah. Who is a you know fledgling comedian yeah uh who ended up getting so drunk the night before she couldn't make it to your show too hung over too hung over oh yeah, yeah. yeah was, that was like the one of the whole points of seeing you was uh yeah. right right to have you meet so this girl she, and, she was partying with this friend of hers and, yep and the girl's a lightweight yeah 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 so uh all right so you have two you have nick and yep. you're doing the cooking and i can't i don't know when you and kathy got married even i did uh 80 89 oh wow yeah, we miss these big chunks. So, okay, so when do you um, take the 
the control of the kitchen. In terms of like an actual manager, like yeah, a chef. Yeah. Well, okay, so I did the the French restaurant for four and a half years. Yeah. Uh, then I took a sous chef position down here yeah. at the Jockey Club, which yeah. was that's my first chef's job. And so in, a sous chef is the right hand man, right? It literally means under chef, right? Right. So okay. you are under the executive chef. Okay. And the executive chef George. I'm not going to give us the last name, but he had a bit of a drinking problem, uh-huh. and um, he would he and I were supposed to be working together, yeah. like you know, and then he'd call me up and go, "I'm going to go sit in the office, and I uh, just need you to make sure lunch is on." T-. I'm like, so basically, I was doing the lunch, and he was like, "All oh, fucked up, yeah, sitting in the office, restaurant know, business, yeah, you know, sleeping it off, yeah." Uh, but unfortunately, it did catch up to him, so they got rid of him, and yeah. then. This is like the millennial year, right? The the 2000, 2000 yeah. 99 going to 2000. Yeah. And I was, you know, I mean, I've been a cook and now a sous chef for like five months. And they said, you're the chef now. So I'm like, oh, okay. And by the way, you have, you know, we have the, the yeah. 2000 coming up, the Y2K bullshit. Yeah. And they had to do all these menus. And yeah. So sink or swim. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't get fired. I actually did a pretty good job. Got us through all that bullshit. Yeah. And then by April that year, they brought an actual executive chef they brought from the company yeah. to run the whole hotel. Because there's also a banquet side. Okay, so... I was too green. Yeah, yeah. But you were able to... How, how long did you for hold For the it? restaurant. I was for the restaurant. Four months? Yeah, did. yeah. From like uh, November till April. And then and then where'd you go? Well, that was my uh, foray into Starwood. That was what got me into Starwood Hotels. I was with them for almost 17 years. Wow. Yeah, so then I you know, moved around as a chef. Yeah. Was at the Westin uh, yeah. for 13 of those years. Wow. Head chef? Uh, yep, executive chef wow. there. Wow, an executive chef, you just run the whole kitchen. Yeah, you, you run. Go around well, t- if you're the executive chef at a hotel, yeah, runs all the culinary. So because you have you banquet walk side taste and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was cooking too. Trust yeah, me. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of pastry, so we did a lot of weddings. Yeah, um, you make a good wedding cake. Well, good funny story about that too. <laughs> It wasn't my wedding cake, but back at the rest, the French restaurant, I learned a lot of pastry from Alain. Alain Roussel was the yeah. chef owner, yeah. right from France. And uh, we did a lot of weddings on the weekends, right? Yeah. So he, he had just, here's his menu, this is what you get. Yeah. Don't ask questions, this is how you're going to get it. So we provided these uh, mousse cakes. We right. always made these mousse cakes for the weddings. Yeah. Well, to make, I would always make the cake for him, right? Then he would dress it with the fondant and do all that shit. Yeah. And uh, you have to take acetate and you line the inside of the, ring mold right that's how sure. you shape your yeah yeah, layers, yeah, yeah right yeah. well when you assemble the cake you got to take the ring mold off and the acetate right because right. it's a strip of plastic well he didn't so we're it's the wedding and we're in the kitchen which is downstairs every, also we hear all this fucking commotion going on on every pan though and uh, let's say you do three layers yeah. each one has to have this acetate know, so like, you can take the mold off yeah but he didn't, take six, them- he didn't take it off of any of it. he totally <laughs> forgot about it so the bride and groom, they're cutting the cake. Yeah. And they're cutting, they're like they're sawing through them. They're like, what is this shit? There was fucking plastic in it. Uh, so we had to take the whole cake back downstairs, take all the fondants off. And remove the Remove the plastic, you know, the acetate. And uh, yeah, he, he felt bad because it was his, you know, oh he did it, not God. me. I'm like, help, hands up. I didn't do it. I just, memorable I made wedding. it for you. Memorable wedding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. that video. Yeah. The, the, the joke cake. Yeah. Well, we also remember the sous chef. Scott was doing, it's a very classic dish where you make a bisque or whatever, yeah. and you have this lion's foot bowl, yeah. and you put the bisque in it, yeah. and then you cover it with puff pastry, and you bake it. So you serve it, they break through the top, yeah. eat the soup, and they get this nice puff pastry. Yeah. Well, we were busy as shit for lunch, and he's knocking these things out, knocking these things out, right? Yeah. And he had a, takes, takes like 15 minutes yeah. from ordering. Yeah. Uh, finally, waiter comes down, he's got his 
you know, tray and there's this fucking bowl there with the puff pastry in the hole in it. He goes, chef, there's, there's no soup in it. He totally, he baked the puff, but didn't put soup in the bowl. So, surprise, nothing's coming out of this cake. I mean, the poor customer. But I think the customer, so he got all mad at himself. But uh, I was laughing because it was kind of funny at the time. But you never thought, like, I'm going to open a restaurant? I have. I've always thought about that. Never did it. Yeah. Because uh, another guy went to culinary school who's yeah. quite successful, opened a restaurant, and I don't know, what am I, 59 now? So this has got to be over 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I stopped in. I, I stopped in his place. I said, hey, Damien. I said, you know, and he's, there is a Sunday. I'm like off from work, getting a haircut. He's sweating. He's fucking all, you know, he's like soaking wet. <laughs> yeah. He's in his place working. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he takes a break and he and I are just talking. And it was his first Sunday he opened for brunch and they were busy as shit. Right. And he's, he's cooking omelets and doing all that stuff. Man, I'm thinking to myself, God, I'm glad I'm not doing that. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to him. I said, you know, I was thinking about yeah. opening a place. Because at this point, I think it was mid 40s. Yeah. And I said, you know, you did it successfully. What did it take? You know, what did it take for you to do that? Yeah. He goes, well, for the first two years, uh, I worked from uh, nine in the morning until two in the morning, every day, seven days a week. I'm like, count me out. Fuck that. I'll just, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Like nine in the morning. I work from nine in the morning until eleven a.m. Take a break. Come, yeah. I mean, give me a break. I'm not doing uh, so. That he pretty much talked me out of it. Oh my god. I mean, that's a rough business. Well, you know, then you're you're counting on people showing up for work, and that doesn't happen a lot oh, for all the right, time. Dude. And that's you Restaurant. know, that's I mean, I didn't own the place, but I mean, I've, I've been managing kitchens for years, and I mean, I'd get these fucking texts at like four in the morning, chef, I can't come in, my breakfast cook. Yeah. So I'm going in at yeah. four thirty in the morning. I'm opening the kitchen, cooking breakfast. Mixing I'm like, why am I doing up. that? But you were working for the government towards the end. Uh, I was with uh, NIH as a senior executive chef there. Yeah. At the end, yeah. but like, was it? Did you like it? No, no. <laughs> there, I mean, you know, there's always takeaways, right? I mean, there are. I had people I liked. I liked working with the, you know, a lot of the staff. Um, I but, liked a lot of what we did because I was able to actually um, introduce things like, you know, because I have a, a different background from yeah. a lot of the chefs that are yeah. in that kind of uh, kitchen, and yeah. uh, so I was able to do things that they had never seen before. So I was like, you know, that was fun to like teach people or yeah. try something different with yeah. the clientele and they'd be like, oh, this is fucking awesome. You know, yeah. it's just so it's nice to do that. But yeah. in the end, it's still a job. And, you know, NIH was rough. Yeah. Because you know, there's so many facets and the client can be difficult. And, it's uh, the National Institute of Health? Yep. Yeah, right in Bethesda. Yeah. And that was the last job. That was my last. Yeah. Right until uh, April 31st of this year. Yeah. And wh who's, where's your, who got, where'd you get your pension from? From them? Oh, I have no pension. Oh, you don't? No, no. Yeah. I mean, I've been a, a, a You saved your own. Yeah. 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 yeah savvy yeah. investor. So. But the government, you didn't work for them long enough to have. No, uh, and I, it wasn't. Um, I didn't work for the government. I was a contractor. Oh, I was a contractor. Right. So we were yeah. a private company. Wow. And now you're doing landscaping. Yep. That's great. Yep. Well, Wait, now how old is your son? 20. God, he's going to be what? 27? And he's married? No. Oh. No. And the, and the daughter's not married. No, yeah. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's young though. I mean, she better not be married. She's not even. She'll turn twenty three. He turns twenty seven. That's oh. right. There's four years apart. And it was challenging. <laughs> yeah, big nod of the head. Yes, you see that. <laughs> yep. But you seem okay. You seem yeah, yeah, I love her. You know. Yeah, but both of them, the son, he's like very different. Yeah. I mean, Nick is Wharton grad. Yeah. Super, you know, straight. Yeah. Not straight, but I mean, in terms of, he's not straight, actually. <laughs> he's not straight at <laughs> no, all. No, no. But yeah. um, 
How was that? But no, a, but a gay kid for you? I, I don't. I don't care. Never bothered me. Never. No. Nope. That's great. Didn't really phase me. That. But that did that surprise you that it that it didn't that phase it didn't you? bother me? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, different. I'm upstate New York white guy. Yeah. You know, grew up with construction. Yeah. You'd think it would, right? right. You'd think, oh, yeah, you guys but, must be a bunch of fucking rednecks. <laughs> but I don't care. You know, yeah. just never really. Good was ever an issue? Yeah, yeah, real good kid. Yep, oh, that's great. swimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and Kathy's doing good. Is she retired? No, I'm sure she wants to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, she works hard. She works her ass off. Uh, National Academy of Sciences. So she's and, an editor, and uh, for she's kind of like learning this as she goes because it's yeah. technical stuff, which I don't know what the hell that is. How'd she end up it. there? Uh, it was a part-time gig. She's been trying to do um, you know juggle yeah. the kids for yeah, all these yeah. years and find jobs that kind of suited the balance yeah yeah you know, yeah, and yeah because clearly i couldn't yeah um so she had to unfortunately and uh you know she did but she sacrificed a lot yeah and uh she's been she was working two jobs for freaking ever yeah and just killing herself so yeah. she left the one uh this year yeah yeah and now she's she took this one full time, but yeah. it's still a lot of work. Wow! Yeah, well, you she's got, not jumping into trucks, right. And taking out her hip, but you know, at, for, as as she looks stressed, and she, you don't have to do that. I guess not, <laughs> but it's an option. Do you still play uh, softball with the Fugazi guy? Yeah, yeah, uh, Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of they're all all these old. You know, rockers. The punk rockers from the from the DC scene. Yeah, well, Ian Fugazi yeah. and then, uh, Mike Russell, who's with uh, Shutter to Think. Yeah. Um, oh, and Kim. Kim Coletta was a Jawbox, and she's actually still recording. They're doing something now. She's in the studio doing something. Yeah, I wish I, I can't remember. Like, I'm, I'm, there's some things I don't remember about me. People like duration my, of time. Well, well, yeah, because like I remember I lived in 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 Somerville at Dave Cross's. Like at Bill Wilson's place when I came back, but I was sleeping Dave's bed when when he was at his girlfriend's, and I'd sleep on the couch. But I don't know how long that went on for. So out of all the places you've lived at, what place do you have the most endearment to? Well, it's weird as time goes on. Like I just was in Boston, and it's it, I I have I never go there, but I, I remember it yeah. because I've I've separate set, sets of memories from Boston. I have the memories of us you know, in college and shortly after college, then I have the horrible memories of going back there to start doing comedy and doing those rooms and, you know, doing Coke and doing all that whole bit. Of, and I'm like, it's traumatized. Yeah, when I go back yeah. there, I'm like, Oh God, this is where it happened. You know, <laughs> there's that sidewalk. Exactly. It's that kind of shit, but it's a weird city in San Francisco. Like I was kind of buzzed a lot and it sort of is surreal. I, I would say that New York, I, I was probably the best time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, once I I kind of got grounded there and and uh, you know did did all the stuff I did. I had a place out in Astoria with that woman uh, who I married, and then I fucked that marriage up, and then oh yeah, and then nine eleven happened. Yeah. <laughs> so how many times have you been married? Twice. 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 No kids. I, I do joke about that. It takes a, a special kind of asshole. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to have two wives and no kids. Yeah, well. <laughs> I, I've brought that joke back several times. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's so but, good, uh, so relevant. Yeah, I mean. But yeah, I think New York and LA has been good. I love my house in LA, but it's, everything's going to burn. Everything's going to burn. It's going to burn. Yeah. It's fire season. It is. There's no water and it's burning. It's God, like you just sort of cruel. wait. It's But I love the fucking house. Would you like where you live here? Yeah. I mean, I, we, we have a great location because it's very close to downtown DC. Yeah. You know, f you know 10 miles, but uh, everything is accessible. Yeah. Is it and a house or a condo? It's a house, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And our, all the pricing went 
you know, sky high. So you, you're good. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice to yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, I'm like I said, I've always been cheap. Yeah. Uh, definitely didn't live York, beyond it. Oh, hell yeah. Yep, yep. You're always kind of proud of it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. But, um, and so we ended up buying, yeah. you know, we've been in the house for as old as, as long as Nick is old. Oh, wow. So we, he, we moved in when he was like three weeks old. And you didn't take out money against it? No. Oh. No, no. I, I, we ended up building on the back, extending the kitchen, knocking yeah. some walls out, that kind of shit. So we've done some work to it, but. Oh, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have. We've a been there for twenty-seven own. years, and is it paid off? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah almost. Yeah. I got like you know some left, not a lot, but I mean, at the time. So we live in Silver Spring. Yeah. And downtown Silver Spring back then was a look, look a fucking war zone. Yeah. Buildings boarded up. Yeah. Restaurants, everything's closed. Yeah. It was, like, it was a dump. Oh yeah. So it depressed the area. Well, so we got a good deal on a house, right? Because right. we didn't have any money. I was making six fifty an hour at that French restaurant. Yeah. Like not making shit. Yeah. Um. And we needed a house. So we've got a house for a very good price. And within a few years, uh, they started redeveloping downtown. Yeah. Now it looks like fucking Bethesda. Yeah. Now it's gone crazy. Yeah. So, of course, all the values have just gone. Like, oh, wow. That's like San nice. Francisco, right? It's like. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not, not anymore. San Francisco took a big hit during COVID. Dude. Oh, did? Yeah. Because yeah. all that tech money, everyone realized they didn't have to go to work. That's so true. all, Still. you know, everything that was holding that city together got pulled out from under it. And it's a little scary. It's a little weird. Um, LA's okay. You know, it's very spread out. It's hard not to figure, you know, but, but San Francisco, I don't know. LA, my, my house is, you know, it, it goes up, it all goes up. I was looking in New Mexico. I was going to go get a place in New Mexico, but that's yeah. on fire. So like, that's on fire. Yeah. go to Taos. Was it nice up there? You it's show beautiful. me pictures. It's beautiful, but it's on fire. Like everything. Even that area? Well, I don't know what's on fire, but a lot of New Mexico is on fire. <laughs> and I just want to go someplace where there's well, no fire. Desert. Well, I was just in Tulsa and it's sort of like, I got to decide whether, what do I want? Fire and drought or, or tornadoes and, and, you know, and winter. I mean, what's Tulsa? Tulsa. Why, why would you want to I was just there. there. I did a TV show. Well, there's all these little cities. Like I was just in Pittsburgh too. A lot of younger people are sort of coming back and building kind of creative communities and like kind of breathing life yep. back into these well, cities. That's kind of cool. What well, is kind of cool? I mean, Pittsburgh, I was surprised. It's fucking beautiful, that city. Have you been to Pittsburgh? No. It's well, beautiful. And Tulsa's, I wouldn't say it's beautiful, but it's its its, its own thing. But like, uh, you know, all these little things are happening, but like I might be, I was just in Cleveland too and I went to one restaurant and I'm like, oh my God, Cleveland's amazing. But yeah, Oh, Cleveland can be, I've always, you know, I think that always got a bad rap. Cleveland? Because of, you know, the river being on fire, that yeah. sort of thing. But I mean, still, it's a nice enough. I'm sure they have nice parts in Cleveland that are freaking cool. I was just in cool. Detroit. Yeah, right? everything. Those were, were once glorious cities. So that, the infrastructure is still there. There's just nobody yeah. living in it. Yeah. And it's a little, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just, I can't wait to like... All these red states that are just these fucking insane red states. Like, eventually, all the rich people on the West Coast, it's going to be unlivable. So, uh, unless they put up borders, they're all going to move there. It's going to change the dynamic of all the states. Yeah, no one's going to want to go to California. They're all going to get the fuck out, right? Oh, it's I, it's it's a little scary, dude. But, look, it was good talking. I'm just going to have to fall in the ocean just to put out the fire. I know, exactly. I don't, like, you, you just look at that ocean and sort of like, can't you make that water yeah. work for us? San Andreas Fault needs to go now. Yeah. Yeah, just knock it off. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, man. It, it does get a little weird. But uh, I'm glad we're both healthy. And uh, it's good talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So that was me and Lance. And I told you earlier that I talked to uh, Tony and Brad. And uh, and it was just, uh, it was like, 
it's not it's it, it it's not really a full circle feeling, but it's sort of like part of you. It's like it's it's almost like kind of reconnecting part of you, like not not quite a whole appendage, but the, but some part of your heart gets reconnected, and you're sort of like, oh yeah, this is really a, a, a living part of of who I am. And I think that not unlike you know my experience with museums, and not unlike the the, the these. These things, the only, the reason you engage or redefine or, or check your memories or, or activate your sense of history is that it is a part of all of us. And, and it, 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 it certainly on the American level, uh, on the global level and on a personal level, I mean, you, you have to seek to find a place in, in, what you, in, in how you fit into your own humanity and to the global humanity and to, you know, what, where your heart's at. Sadly, a lot of times, conscience, empathy, um, uh, you know, doing the right thing are, are, are choices you have to make. They're not natural. And they're becoming less natural as people double down on horrific behavior. As tolerance diminishes, you know, democracy will crumble. And the only bulwark we have against that is knowing who we are, where we come from, what's right and wrong, and what we're supposed to represent here. Heavy shit. Heavy shit. I got no music. I got the music in me, but I got no music for you because I'm on the road. I hope you. I hope you enjoyed this. Boomer lives. Monkey La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Everywhere.